For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on Tubi, on digital, and DVD. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently trying to make more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Ryan Spindell on the show to talk about how he made his anthology feature, The Mortuary Collection, what his approach was, why he decided to make an anthology film in the first place, and how he got the film funded and distributed. After that, we premiere a brand new segment called You're the Expert, which you may remember from last week when we attempted to premiere it then. But first, Ulrich, what's going on? Oh, you know, life stuff. I'm I so my my producer, the EP on this movie I'm attached to, got back from Berlin. He had fun. He had some good meetings. We basically found out that we got passed on by one distributor, but now we've another one who's very excited about us. So I feel they he feels very positive about it. He thinks that like they're gonna go for it, but we don't know yet. And they're gonna read the script and go through the whole process and blah 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 and the whole thing. So you know, fingers crossed, wait and see. Who knows? But he seemed pretty jazzed about it, you know. And so if uh, he's jazzed, I'm jazzed. But you know, I feel like this whole process. <laughs> it's like it's all these levels and steps of like you know you're reaching the next level you know it's like oh we get a distributor on board okay great all right okay what budget are they gonna give us okay cool so like that's like two steps and then it's like okay now you must find the actors that they approved actually that's another step they have to give like accept the the actors that that we gave them because they they like the list right they're like oh that's a good list but, you know, you know, one thing is to say a good list. Another thing is to, like, give us a check and be like, yes, with these people, we'll do it, you know? And so then once they say that, then we got to go find the actors. So it's like, <laughs> you know, make sure they'll actually do it. And so it's like all these levels of, like, yeses before anything actually will happen. So it still feels, like, impossible that this movie's going to happen in May or June or July. But, you know, it is February 21st. So, like, you know, if they gave us an answer, let's say like in two weeks we got an answer for them and it was a yes. And then, like, maybe one more week after that, like, we get the details. So that's what, like, March 10th, maybe, at, like, absolute best. So then, if let's say we start looking for actors and start trying to make offers March 10th that or around that time. You know, what's the quickest you could reasonably expect anyone to say yes two weeks probably not till april right yeah <laughs> so yeah, then yeah if like if 
everything goes a hundred percent perfect. We're talking like like actually knowing we're gonna make the movie in April. And so if we actually know we're gonna make the movie in April, like when's the earliest we could possibly get out and shoot the movie? Like maybe late May. I mean, we've heard people tell stories of like doing it in t- two weeks or three weeks, but like I don't want to kill myself, <laughs> and I don't want to like have a terrible time. Uh, with my life. So I would say like, you know, if we, let's say we found out like April 2nd or 3rd that like we're a go and we got to produce this movie, then I would say maybe we're shooting like the end of May. And so then I would be done end of June, be back in July, baby is born, end of July, life is perfect. But did you understand how many things have to go 100% right for that scenario to play out, right? It's like, it just seems like the odds are like so against that happening. But maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. We'll see. But that, that's sort of what I've been thinking about and like being like, hmm, is this real or is this fantasy land talk? What's going on here? But yeah. In like a few episodes ago, you said something about how nice it would be to not make a movie before the baby, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm not depressed about it. I'm like, yeah. fine. <laughs> if it doesn't happen, that's cool. That's all good. I'll just coast into fatherhood or second fatherhood. What do you call it? Yeah. Baby number two? Father times two? I don't know. Whatever it is. Oh, I don't I, I don't know the terminology. There's I no name two. for it. It's just yeah. no name for what I become. I'm just still a dad. <laughs> but I have two of them instead of one. Yeah. But, you know, so I don't know. Whatever. It's like I'm just not going to worry about, like, the movie. Like, either it's going to happen or it's not. If it happens when I can't do it then I can't do it and they'll have to find another director and I'll be very sad, but uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that'll be the way it is. And you know, if they, if they're able to, if it, if it is able to be pushed out for me to do it after Jesus Christ, I don't even know like when would be acceptable for me to leave. Like probably not until like, I don't know. Right. It's all speculative. It's kind of (laughs) like you could say at time, but like, are you going to be ready? Are you going to, you know, who knows? Like November, yes, I am ready. Like probably not. Like I probably won't want to like actually go do anything like that until like twenty twenty four. But that's like what so. my production. One of my productions is like, yeah, you know, a couple months after you give birth, we'll jump into the next project. And I'm like, yes, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, of course, sounds great, A plus, you know. But like, does that sound fun? No, 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 it doesn't sound fun. I don't know. It's like everything needs to be weighed, right? Like it all has to yeah. be like analyzed and like decided upon like with your partner and like you know you can't like i don't it's like i think it's a good process or a good approach not to like predetermine anything not to be like i will not do this i will not do that it's like well you know like see what the situation is and see if it's worth it and see if if it's feasible but like you know don't yeah just be ready to make the decision when you know if if you're put in that position, you know, because you very likely won't, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. the ch- like there's a good chance, like if they s- they're saying November, that they actually will be April 2024, right? Like, you know, it's, it's like, true. yeah, you know, you never know. So, I mean, I feel like wait until so the until money's the in check- the bank. Yeah. You know, until the money's in the bank and they like got you an offer and a contract with like a, a paycheck assigned to it or a, a fee. It's like until that day comes. You don't need to worry about it, right? Like, you know, you don't need to, like, tell them this, I'm not available, or that, I'm not available. Just, like, wait until the offer's actually on the table. Then you can decide. 
you know. That's interesting though about the second distributor and maybe we'll you'll report back later after things progress on that front. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I mean, I don't, I I would love to know what their response is in a week. I don't think we'll find out that soon. I think it'll be like at least 2 weeks, maybe even 3 to 4 weeks before we really have an answer from that distributor. And so and there's a good chance it'll be like, "Oh, on to the next one." Or yeah. they'll be like, "Yes," and then it's like, "Okay, well then like that's just one of like four yeses before we get to like the actual big important thing of like making offers to actors because I feel like that is going to be the hardest, most difficult, most unknown quantity that we're going to face. And like once that starts to happen and we get yeses on that front, then shit is real. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a few updates. They're not that, I mean, I don't want to say they're that super dramatic or interesting, but one is I'm moving. So that's been very interesting in that, like letting go of the place that I've lived in for 14 years like the process of like the massive life change that is so overwhelming in ways that I didn't expect. <laughs> like I was like, cause you moved recently, right? And yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I always think of it as, oh, it's just a logistical thing. You just put things in boxes and you go, you know, and then people are like, no, 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 you don't understand. And you're like, oh, they're being overdramatic, but it's, it is so incredibly difficult to move. Like, Like I'm finding things in pockets of our very tiny apartment that I that I haven't seen for years. And then you have this like sentimental moment of like, can I let it go? Am I can I forget that that ever happened? Like I'm throwing away all my trophies from my first feature because I'm like. These are throwing silly. away. I'm th- throwing I, they're in the away. trash. They're in the dumpster. Oh, they're, they're but Colin's literally in the dumpster. Like, look through your garage one day and be like, "Look, mom, I found your tr- wit, your award for no. best feature for." Bread He's and like, butter. "Good job, mama, for not hanging on to that crap." Wow. No, I, they're in like literally in the dumpster because I was just like, "Why? Why? Why keep this? Why? I'm proud of it. I'll always have that pride." Why do I need the statue that takes up room that I'm never going to display? You know, I'm I guess I'm have I'm a little colder than other people. <laughs> well, you can't even see it because it's out of focus. But like I do have my alternate. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, they're in display behind trophy me. Room. <laughs> Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. And like, I'll just I'll just keep on adding to it. I mean, I have strange thing. Well, see, that's the thing is like, I don't even have really great awards for my earlier movies. I have like I had two. For uh, one for Strange Thing and one for Brother, but then they got completely destroyed by my cats. And so then they're like, all right, well, then they were trash. So I just threw those away. Kick them out. Kick them out. But I'm going to hold on to the alternate ones. They're they're actually legit. Like one, well, one's a ring that you can wear, which is badass. And then one's um, a fucking bronze metal sculpture. We saw when we talked to um, Mark Stoloroff. Yeah, Mark Stoloroff. Yeah, he had like four of them from Arizona <laughs> in, in his right. background. And they're all this, you know, from different years, different movies oh. or whatever. And I was yeah, like, well, yeah, I got one. Trash. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel fine about. I feel fine sure, about it. It's sure. like this like weird experience, right? And then the other thing is I spoke to a casting director. So for for those following along, I, I want to make, I want to shoot the opening sequence of my horror film before I give birth. And I, I talked to a casting director last week and I was like, okay, well, I think I have to cast the whole movie because it's two actors per character, different ages, and we have to, they have to look alike and, you know, they have to have similar qualities. And she's like, I don't even see a world where you can do that. How would you, 
like she gave me the best reality check. She's like, how would you even like structure the deal with agents of those who are not being shot in the summer, like the character, like the actors who will be shot six months from now. It's like you're not fully financed. You don't know when you need them. You don't know how long you need them. And they're not going to save a spot in their calendar for six months from now. Like that's that's absurd. So it was this massive reality check of like we have to cast the younger versions of our main characters first not knowing who's going to play the older version. And that's like the, the actor that has that that's like three quarters of the movie. Right. So we just have to have like faith that we'll be able to match them up in six months and just shoot this opening sequence as like a massive act, like a massive leap of faith into the process. I mean, this is what my friend said to me, because I was like saying the same thing about Strange Thing one million years ago. I was like, I'm going to shoot this and this will be the opening scene for the feature that I'm going to write that like, and it'll be the same thing, same actor, same everything. And he's like, even if the movie stays the same, and even if the opening scene stays the same, you're going to recast. <laughs> and I was like, no. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a little bit different because you're a little bit more planned out. It's like, you've got the whole script, script, it's all whatever, but like, there's a good chance that you'll have to reshoot this, you know? I well, mean, I don't think I'll reshoot this because it's the opening sequence and they're 18, right? You think yeah. I will have to reshoot that. You think I will. You might have to, depending on who you cast. Like, let's say you cast, like, you know, let's just be super vulgar, like a, a white guy as your lead. And then, like, you have the perfect Asian actor who you want to play the lead later. And you're like, well, this is not going to make sense. And you might just be like, I have to reshoot this. You might. It might happen, you know? Right. So, like, that's the quandary right now. It's like, do I just wait? Do I just wait? Well, I think I think the value of what you will make through this opening piece will will, will be just as valuable if you reshoot it as if you don't reshoot it. Like, because you're going to use it to raise money. You're going to use it to get people excited about the thing. If it happens to actually become the opening sequence and it ends up being the first part of the movie, that's amazing. That's like a 1,000% success. But if it just gets you funded and ready to make the movie, then it's also 100% of success, you know? So, like, I think you don't put as much pressure on yourself, you know, and just, like, Mm. cast who you think is great, do your best to match them so it can become the opening scene of the movie. But if you can't, maybe you have to let it go, you know? But if you raise the money, you fucking won. So it doesn't really matter. Yes, but if I'm, like, self-funding at least half of this week-long shoot and I'm about to have a second baby and that's like a lot of money to put down. I yeah. want that money to go towards the film. And so to me, yeah. it's like, if it's, it's, I think it's an economic decision. Like creatively, sure, it would be incredibly rewarding to shoot something about this in this film before I have a baby. It's one-sixth of the budget. Whoa, what's well, a yeah. lot. Yeah, (laughs) it's It's 15 pages. It's 15 pages. So it's like what and we broke the film up into six sequences. And it is actually we budgeted the opening and it is about one sixth of the full budget right now. We're trying to work it down a little bit. But yeah, yeah, it's a meaningful amount. Here's what my what I would do. I would cast the people who I think are the best for the roles who match your ideal leads as the adults. So like try to match them in your mind of like who you really want to be in this in this role. And then 
you know, try to do that and like do your best and like, you know, like try because like more than likely it's going to be totally fine. Like you're going to be able to match them up. It's not going to be a big deal. You're going to find actors who are close enough who like look like they could have been those younger people and it's going to be 1000% fine. But like in the worst, worst case scenario, you raise the money for the movie and you have to reshoot it. Worst case scenario. Or we shoot enough singles that I could just swap one person out. Yeah, you could you could potentially Maybe. do that too. Maybe <laughs> low and light and swap someone out. Effects are pretty great these days. Like you could probably comp somebody in if you had to. Worst case scenario. <laughs> Well, I've indulged myself enough, so I think maybe I should switch to the Patreon plug-in. <laughs> plug, Patreon plug. <laughs> the worst Everyone transition is- of your life. <laughs> possible, possible. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, let's stop talking about this. It's so overwhelming. But I appreciate the advice, Auric. Thank you. You're going to be great. It's going to be good. Just do it. Do it. Do it. I got to do it. For everyone who's listening, don't forget to support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash MMIH podcast is how we fund the show. It is how we keep going. It is how we pay our amazing editor. We're very grateful for all of you who have supported us. So thank you. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Jambox.io, a new royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. They offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is great. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Ryan Spindell. Ryan, will you give us the elevator pitch for the Mortuary Collection? Wow, you're just coming right out of the gate with the, <laughs> with the big ones. Sure. The Mortuary Collection is a horror anthology film, which for those people who don't... I was actually surprised to find out after I made the movie that a lot of people don't even know what the term anthology means. I think it's maybe something more like niche within the horror community. But an anthology movie is like Pulp Fiction. It's like several stories, short stories, kind of all tied together by a wraparound. And the Mortuary Collection in particular is set in a old gothic mortuary and it revolves around a young woman who's applying for a job as the mortician's assistant and while getting a tour of the mortuary she starts interacting with the eccentric mortician who resides there and asks him to tell her the three craziest stories that he's ever seen in his tenure and he tells her three stories each more terrifying than the last i hope and then she tells him a fourth story Oh, cool. That's very fun. How many days did you shoot the anthology? That is a wonderful question. <laughs> so this is an, this was an interesting, production-wise, it was an interesting test subject in that we kind of shot this in pieces over the course of really two years. But if you really think about it, it was more about like eight years. Because what happened was I wrote this anthology back in 2012 because um, at that time, anthologies were were just not happening. I think Trick or Treat had come out. It didn't get released and nobody was doing them. And I, was, I remember seeing the trailer for Trick or Treat and thinking, this is the kind of movie I want to see more than any other movie as a fan. And so when I first moved to LA, I was like, what's the movie I just want to see the most? And it was an anthology movie. And so I wrote it 
And I'm like, when people read this, they're going to get anthologies through and through, and it's going to be a no-brainer. And of course, everybody passed. Most people wouldn't even read it just because it was an anthology. So <laughs> it turns out the rumors are true. Anthologies are tough to make. And so what I did is I did a Kickstarter campaign, and I raised a little bit of money to make one of the segments in the movie. And so that happened, I think, in 2014, I want to say, 2015. And we made a segment. And my thought process was when people see the kind of tone and style we're going for, through this single short, they'll be like, oh, of course, we definitely want to finance the rest. So I made the short and it, it did really well in the festival circuit. Wait, which one was the one you did first? It was The Babysitter Murders. It's actually the last story in the yeah, group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's oh, the, wow. Yeah, I just picked the one that was the most contained because it was one location and basically two actors. Turns out it was very challenging for lots of other reasons. But anyway, that, that movie did really well in the festival circuit and I got a lot of some fancy new agents and managers and I got all these cool meetings and whenever somebody said, oh, we love this, what's next? I said, oh, it's the feature. And they all said, absolutely not. So I kind of found <laughs> myself back at square one. Me and my producing partner, Justin, we were just about to put the whole project to bed and move on to something that was more reasonable. And I got a call from Allison Friedman, who was one of the executives I had met on my water bottle tour. She was like, hey, I think I could get a million bucks. Do you want to try to make this feature? And so we kind of went from you know putting it in the drawer to pulling it out again, dusting it off, and then trying to figure out how we could make it into uh, a feature film. And as it turns out, even though a million dollars is an exuberant amount of money, especially considering I've done only shorts at that point, so my budgets were pretty low, we met with a bunch of line producers and they all said, you need at least $4 million to make this movie. And even then it's going to be <laughs> a piece of crap compared to what you want it to be. And so we were kind of sitting in this sort of weird position where we're like, we have a million dollars, we have a script, everyone's saying we can't do it for this budget, but we make shorts all the time. We make them for five grand and it's no problem. So let's, before this money goes away, let's just start shooting these in pieces like we know how to do with the people that we like to work with and see what happens. And so we kind of cobbled together piece by piece. Our next shoot was a 10-day shoot. So, so the Babysitter Murders was a five-day shoot. And then our next shoot was a 10-day shoot. And that was two more segments hmm. in the movie, Till Death and Unprotected. And then we went down for a bit. We did some editing. And then we ended up going to Astoria, Oregon to shoot the wraparound stuff with Clancy Brown and the mortician and the mortician's assistant and all of the kind of exterior stuff that sets up the town of Raven's End. And then once we had all of that shoot, Shot. So that was 10 more days. And then once we had all that shot, we had one more short to shoot. And it was this 23 minute short called Ring Ring. My producers came to me and they were like, we don't have enough money to shoot this last segment. And even if we did, the movie's going to be two hours, two and a half hours long. So we have to figure something else out. So I was like, okay, so I need to figure out something I can shoot in one room with one person. And that's producible in Los Angeles where everything costs a, costs a fortune. And so I came up with this idea of doing sort of like a little silent film with a, a girl in the bathroom fighting a monster. And that's where the fourth segment came from. So that was almost like a, a fix, which like at the time we were worried because it sort of broke the format because before all of the shorts were about the same length. But as we got into editing, we sort of realized, oh, it really works as a nice appetizer to kind of warm you up before you get into these more extensive, you know, 20 minute stories. That was the longest answer oh. for the shortest question. And I didn't even really answer it. And then how many days did you shoot the last one? The last one is a two day shoot. So we're looking at about okay. probably about 17 to 18 days 
with wow. a reasonable crew. And then we probably shot another 10 little splinter units of just like exterior shots. Or I think most of the inserts were shot in my living room with like partial sets. <laughs> there's, there's shots in the movie that were done on my iPhone. I mean, it was really like, I think we shot on 10 different cameras. We kind of really cobbled it together with sort of anything we had re- sort of a connection to just to sort of to get it over the line. Just always remembering that as long as whatever's in the frame fits the aesthetic of the movie, it's fine. And so we like, we did a lot of tricks. It was, the, it was actually the, the end part during editing when we were shooting the inserts and the, and the exteriors and stuff where I really remembered what drew me to cinema in the first place, which is like being crafty and movie magic and figuring out those tricks that kind of fool your audience on no budget. That was really rewarding, I think, for me. There's so much to ask you about. I, you mentioned the million dollars. Is that is that what ended up being the budget? Or is there some other extension of that story? That's it's roughly a million dollars. There might have been like a little bit more spent on the very back end of post in visual effects. But I think I think that ended up evening out in the end anyway. And then you already talked about how you came up with the idea. <laughs> and you also talked about how long you spent on working for the film from coming up with it to releasing it, basically. Because it was around 2014, right? When you started or 2013? 2012. 2012. Yeah. Wow. 2012 was the script, 2014 was the first short, and then there was a pretty big gap. I think it was in 2018, we started shooting the rest in proper when we had the money, and that went to basically 2019, mid middle of 2019 or so. So there was definitely a period where there was almost two years where I felt like I was in production for two years straight, which is like sort of, it's a gift on one side because, you know, as a filmmaker, you get to really like think about every detail and sort of hyper-focus. And if I needed a single prop to be like very specific, I could make it myself because I had time in between these shoots to do it. But on the negative side, it's just like humans are not supposed to be in production for two years straight, unless you have (laughs) the resources of like a Marvel movie where you're like, have a nice trailer and you sleep at night. But like when you're doing a little bit of everything for two years straight, it really kind of, it, it sort of ended up being a situation in which like once we had gone so far and the production value was at a certain level, we couldn't, we set the bar too high. So we couldn't go backwards. So it was just like, I guess we're just doing this. So, you know, painting sets at midnight before the day before we shoot and, you know, borrowing props, shooting stuff in, in my neighbor's yard without permission, like whatever. We have a new question to, I guess, beta test on you. And it's, okay. what would you change if you could change one thing? Ooh. That's an interesting one. I, 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 because the movie has been completed now for a little over almost two years, mm. it really has set in my mind as is. There was originally a, so, so one of the things that was challenging about an anthology for anyone out there who's dumb enough to try to make one. If That's they're trying me, to do all by the way. Are, just, are, are just you really? See, yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> but please gosh. go on. <laughs> okay. 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 So one of the things that I kind of ran into is like, so like a big component of making an anthology is you have to anticipate that you your audience is not accustomed to watching that format. And so you have to do everything you can to help them ease into the format. And so like we were, th- we were, were like sort of talking to people and like, oh, what are some of the things you don't like about anthologies? And they would say like, oh, we don't like the start and stop. We don't like how it's like we're in a thing and then we're out. We have to reset. Mm-hmm. So we put a lot of work into thinking about like, how do we get into the segments? Like how do we like visually transition into the segments so it feels like we're being pulled through? Also, how much time do you get to spend setting up your characters? 
And we kind of found that with each story, you kind of had less time, you had less audience leeway to sort of spend time with character development before you got into the meat of it. So there's a lot of work done there, but also because the opening of the movie, and I'm getting to the answer to this question in a really roundabout way, but because of the opening, we originally had this little mini story that was set in a town where it was kind of like, we wanted to find a way to kind of introduce the town and introduce this old mortuary and this mortician. And we thought, oh, it'd be fun if the kids in the town were like, realized that all this like weird supernatural stuff was always happening in this town. And so they had like, they had figured out that it was all coming from this mortuary. And so we were we kind of had this opening where these kids were like investigating this old mortuary and they're sort of walking through the woods and they're talking about like all these facts about like Raven's End and how like, you know, more people go missing a year than anyplace else in the country and like animals are mutated on an unusual rate. And it was so much fun on the page. But when we and, and uh, the young actors we had were fantastic, but once we put it into the movie, we realized, oh, as soon as people start latching on to these kids, whenever we were like cutting to the mortuary to the main story, they were going, oh, wait, we're, we're starting over? Okay. So we ended up having to reduce that opening down to like its bare, bare, bare bones component to get through it. And I think the original script was just the main character arriving in town and walking through town and picking up all the details. And I think had I maintained that original opening, it would have allowed us to kind of get to know the main character a bit more as she makes her way through the town. And we could kind of see the town through her eyes. And I think it probably would have helped us a little bit in the beginning. It's, it's really hard to say now, but but I think as we all know, in the age of streaming, you have this, sort of these like precious you know, five to 10 minutes at the beginning to get your audience locked in uh, or you could lose them. So I, I don't think I, I can't say for sure if it would have been if it would be a better movie because I do love the the young actors that we worked with. But it was something during production where I was like, oh, I spent all this time shooting all this additional material that isn't necessary. For the Blu-ray or it's on yeah. the Blu-ray for yeah. sure. It is, yeah. Yeah. So you talked about like your the first short, The Babysitter Murders, that did really well in film festivals and kind of like got you your fancy managers and agents. Can you just describe what you mean by doing well at fest festivals? Like, did you win South by Southwest? Like, how well is well to you? And then also, once you did get those agents and managers, like, besides putting on the water bottle tour, which ended up getting you the funding for your movie, what else had, had did they do for you at that time to kind of help you get this movie made? So, yeah, so we played off the top of my head, I want to say we played maybe 30 festivals or so, 30, 35 festivals. And we probably won an award of some kind at maybe 20 of them. We, we had a pretty good oh. run. I mean, it's a pretty like... Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Snappy. It's an attention-grabbing movie. So, like, we would get, like, the coveted last slot usually when we were in blocks. And we actually, because at that time we were sort of all in on the movie, we would, like, go to fest the, all these festivals and just, like, really market the hell out of them, like... We bought all these like baby dolls from Toys R Us, RIP, and <laughs> we made them look creepy and we would put little tags on their necks that said, you know, like a screening time, but like nothing else, just like a certain time in a certain place. 
And we would just plant these babies all over festivals everywhere. So we kind of created this like weird buzz. We also did these babysitter wanted flyers, you know, the kind that you see like uh, at a coffee shop or something with the numbers you can tear away. And we just placed, plastered them everywhere. And then like people would take them down and we'd plaster up like three more. We were just kind of like obnoxious about it. It felt like, it felt like we were going to festivals and everybody was like too cool to market their movies. Like it was like, oh, that's embarrassing. Like let the movie speak for itself. And we're like, well, this movie is just pure fun. So let's like lean into the like obnoxiousness of it. But it ended up working out in our favor. So that, that was sort of the, the festival run side of it, if that answers your question. I think well, we won. I, I, oh, sorry. I was just looking up your list of festivals and like just, you know, you're being very modest, but like you played like Fantastic Fest, you know, and some other really amazing film festivals. So like, yeah, you did, you did very well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. No, it was amazing. We, we got really lucky. I think it was a good time for the type of movie it was too. And it, it's a big, we raised $60,000 on Kickstarter, wow. which I still don't understand. It's a lot. But it allowed yeah, good us, job. It's a lot. Yeah. No, it's, I think my most expensive movie to that point was maybe eight grand or something, but it allowed us like we, we really did put it all on the screen. So we had big stunts. We had lightning machines. We had rain machines. Like we really like tried to like take every single cent that we raised on that platform and put it right on the screen. And I do think that people responded to that. Nice. Yeah. And then um, the the reps. Yeah, I got I got awesome reps. And like I already had my manager prior, but he got a lot more interested in me when he saw. <laughs> the movie he showed up on set and he was like really blown away and then um i ended up signing with uta off of that and it was awesome yeah i mean i had so many water bottle tour meetings because i think the movie the movie is firmly planted in the horror genre i mean it's a slasher movie but i do think it has sort of like a fun factor or a cool factor to it that segment in particular that kind of allowed it to branch out beyond just genre outlets so I would go to have meetings with companies that I had no right to meeting with just because they like liked the buzzy film. So it was great because I got to meet a bunch of people around town. But I think there's a danger in it too, because when you make a short like that and you're getting all these meetings, these meetings rarely go anywhere or at least immediately. So like you said, I, I did find the financing through one of these meetings, but that was like a weird quirk where I happened to meet one person who like had access to financing and was trying to transition from being an executive to a producer. But otherwise, nothing really came from those meetings. And, and I probably spent a year or more going to those meetings and it makes you feel like you're a working professional. But at the end of the year, you have really nothing to show for it except you've met all of these people and you have probably not been working as hard as you should have been on your own projects because you keep feeling like, oh, at any moment, I'm going to, this like incredible script's going to drop mm. into my lap and it's going to be easy. And I, I have kind of fallen into that trap a few times where throughout my career, like even my first short film, I kind of had a similar trajectory where it was like a really buzzy short. I got different manager, different agents. And I had I did like two years of meetings. And at the end of it, I was like, I haven't made anything for two years. Like I've gotten good at chatting with people. I can like go into a room and not seem like a total weirdo now, like I like I did when I first started. But beyond <laughs> that, you just have a bunch of numbers and a bunch of email addresses. And those email addresses change all the time too. So it's not like those are like forever like gold mines that you can go back to. So I think it was really cool to have all those meetings. But ultimately, aside from that, this one executive who was like an angel investor essentially, nothing really came from any any of the rest. And so I think it's like it's funny, like as my career has slowly sort of gotten, you know, bigger and better. The, the, the closer I get to where I want to be, the more I've realized that you have to make your own destiny. You have to hustle. You have to make it happen yourself. And it's 
depressing but empowering i think you just have to like try not to waste several years you know like talking to people about making movies and, and try to spend that time actually doing it i have decided to embark on an anthology not necessarily mm-hmm. next year but maybe a year and a half from now and the reason i came up with this idea of doing it for myself is because we're doing it as a multi-director anthology and we're each okay. self-funding okay. a short and then combining forces and then i'm a sales rep and i work in distribution so i would would take on the pitch process for sales. That that makes sense. I I, I should probably re- restate that version. <laughs> A hundred percent makes sense. It's the one where you're doing them all yourself like an egomaniac. Well, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. I don't think it's egomaniac. There's a nice continuity to all the shorts. But when you were six years down the line versus eight years down the line, you know, were you ever thinking I'm going to bring in another teammate or was it always like I want to be the director of all of these projects? Yeah, it, for this one, I, I mean, I would be very interested in doing what you're doing. I do think that that's really cool. I've been in talks with people about being a part of some of those. I think those are really fun. No, I think I'd always... The thing is, is that I really, really love, genuinely love short form. And I love watching it. And I love creating it. And I feel like there's a... It's sort of a lost art. I think a a lot of people... I think making short films has become such a stepping stone that most people don't put the sort of time and energy into really trying to understand how it works. So I had all of these, I would like be working on a future script, but I'd be like, oh, I have this idea. And I'd write like a, you know, 15 page script. And then I just like put it in this folder. So I had all of these stories I wanted to tell and I was like bummed out because I was thinking, well, there's never going to be an outlet for this kind of content unless I just keep making shorts and submitting them to festivals. That's sort of, if I was independently wealthy, I probably would just do that, honestly. But obviously that doesn't make any financial sense. So thinking about the horror anthology as a feature sort of became like a catch-all for me to kind of take all of these stories that have been living in my head Mm. and, and put them in a screen and kind of trick an audience into watching shorts even though they're watching a feature. And so I kind of, and it was, it was cool too, because it kind of, I realized a lot of the stories, 90% of the stories that I was writing were all kind of of the same tone and style. And so the town of Raven's End, which is just the the town that everything is, is happens in, in the movie kind of became this like place and where all of these different stories could live. And the idea always being like, Oh, if I want to do a sequel or a series or something else with it, I can go back to Raven's End and I can explore different nooks and crannies that have yet to be uh, illuminated. So I've talked a lot about with my friends about like taking existing short films and then packaging them as an anthology. And I've seen other people do that successfully. Is there any reason why you recommend not doing that or like any like pitfalls or challenges to the anthology game that we're not, you know, hearing about in this wonderful story of yours? (laughs) No, I think that's a good idea that there was a thing that was happening when I was first sort of first getting into it where these companies, you know, filmmakers would spend, you know, five to $20,000 making their passion project. And then a company would come along and like scoop it up for like two grand and make a fortune and the filmmaker and they'd be like, oh, it's for exposure. So I do have like a my gut reaction to that format is like, oh, this is somebody trying to take advantage of, of passionate filmmakers and make money off of them without paying them what they deserve for the project they made. So if I was going to do that, I think I would go into it with that mindset and understand like, how do I make these filmmakers I'm approaching feel like they're part of the process? How do I make it worth their while? And how do I show them that I'm doing this for the right reasons and that we can all share in the success? And I'm not just going, oh, let me just collect a bunch of shorts and make a buck. All right. 
right. I was thinking more like taking three of my old shorts and then like packing them into an anthology, you know, and then also making a new one or two. And then like, of course, like a rapper to go with it, you know, and doing that whole thing. Cause like, I got like, I got like three or four shorts that are just, you know, sitting there on, on the internet, like, you know, getting one or two views here and there, but like not really doing anything. So like when I saw your IMDB and I saw the babysitter murders, I kind of assumed like, Oh, maybe you'd made this, before and then you decided to make it into into a short but like i love that like your anthology was like written from the beginning as an anthology like which is really ambitious and amazing that you pulled it off <laughs> oh thank you i i mean and, and that's exactly what we did too like there, a lot of people have looked at my um at the IMDb and said like oh it looks like he remade a short and like we didn't remake anything we literally took the short we made and dropped it right in the movie like we redid the soundtrack so it was like cohesive with the rest um, nice. uh, but it worked, it worked really great. And I think like, if you're going to do something like that, I would like put my energy into coming up with like a really fun way to justify the wraparound and to tie them all together. Right. Like if you've made these, these shorts, like over a long period of time and they have like a different aesthetic, like my first three or four shorts are all on film. So they like just do not match the the digital shorts that I made after. So like, if I was going to try to combine those, I'd have to find, I'd find an organic way to be like, and now we open the 16 millimeter footage. We'd look at this like old dating <laughs> thing and now we'd like, Okay. You can just find a fun way to like fuse them all together. I think that's really where that's where anthology wins me over. When when I I feel like even if they are disparate short shorts done by different creative teams and different styles, I like it when the filmmakers behind it find a packaging for it that like embodies the fun factor that I think kind of accompanies like a, a carnival sideshow or like a a potpourri of like horror, the best of horror has to offer. I think when when I see that, that's when I'm I'm really jazzed. I want to ask you about casting, but I'm going to share a pointless anecdote before I do that. <laughs> I watch Jeopardy a lot, and I was following Mike Nelson as a Jeopardy um, <laughs> contestant, and I think I uh-huh. friended him because I was like, "Oh, that's so funny! I'm going to friend this Jeopardy contestant and follow his life because I'm a weirdo." <laughs> and then I was watching Mortuary Collection, and he shows up at every single one of your. Shorts, and he's like the <laughs> continuity king of. I mean, I don't even know what you call that character. And then I see him in commercials, and now we're Facebook friends, and now we're TikTok friends. So, Mike Nelson, your <laughs> recurring character shows up in my life as a recurring uh-huh. character, is what I want to acknowledge. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, for my real question, that has nothing to do with that. <laughs> in the casting of your film, like Emma Horvath, I know they were in our buddies, Fred, What Lies Below, Braddon's film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Clancy Brown, obviously Highlander fame and many other, you know, genre pieces. Was the casting, I mean, we had no idea what Emma was going to do in terms of genre from that point on. But were you casting with any specific agenda in mind? Were you like, I'm going to grab those genre audiences with genre reminders, with types? Or was there some other strategy? And feel free to mention Mike Nelson and your casting strategy as well. Oh, I could do a whole podcast about Mike Nelson. He is the best. He's been a good friend of mine for a really long time, actually. So I, the, the, my, my major, I think the first priority when going into casting was, who do I know that's a fantastic actor, first and foremost, because I knew that the, 
the structure of the production for this was going to be so strange and fragmented. And I assumed early on in the script, there is a lot more intersecting characters and plot lines that was going to require people to sort of intermingle. And so what you quickly find out, and this is, I guess, another pitfall that you could you could find if you're doing a, a anthology like this, is that if you have, you know, there's a like a say you know, a, one character drives by and another character is on the sidewalk, right? So like when we were in Oregon, we're like, oh, we need to get Brennan up here to do this part because he's on the sidewalk when this guy drives by and they're like, oh, well, that's like an $8,000 bill because we have to fly him out. We have to put him up. We have to get him per diem. If we get him a rental car, we have to pay him. We're going to do fringes. And so we're like, oh, I guess we're just going to cut that shot because we're not going to spend Mm $8,000 for that interconnective tissue. And so I kind of knew that going into it. So I was like, who are the best actors that I've met that could fit within this world too? And then, so I kind of started there, which is where Barrick, who's the lead of Till Death, that's the third Mm -hmm. segment. Which is my favorite, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I just love that elevator scene when everything's kind of anti-gravity. It's beautiful. Sorry. I know this is like, I never watch the work of the people we're interviewing. So this is the (laughs) only time I get to indulge myself and reference specific scenes, but I will stop. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love I love that scene too. Yeah, so I sort of started there to kind of put together as many people that fit. I I also really gravitate towards character actors, just character actors as my lead. That's sort of the I think they're the unsung, the shape-shifting unsung heroes of the industry who always pop up in things, always as the best friend or as the quirky neighbor or something. So like, can I take those characters and then let them be front and center? And that just happened to feel right within the world of Raven's End, which has sort of a quirky, stylized, elevated vibe to it anyway. So yeah, so so a bunch of the people were people I directly knew. Christine Kilmer, who's the, the lead in the Medicine Cabinet segment, has been a good friend for a long time. The killer in The Babysitter Murders was my roommate. Uh, one of my closest friends Mm. and then from there then we kind of like obviously Montgomery was going to be like our central biggest casting lift so we had a casting director come in who brought Montgomery uh, this guy Rich Mento who was great and he also brought in Emma and Jacob Elordi and Jacob Elordi at the time hadn't done he'd only done one movie for Netflix called The Kissing Booth and it hadn't come out yet so he was kind of like an unproved actor but I saw his tape he was the first tape I saw and I was like there's no one else and we we just fought to get him because he didn't have a visa at the time he's Australian and then Emma so, so no I had no idea Emma had a history in horror I didn't know that but we got a ton of tapes and I remember it we whittled them down to two and I was just like man there's just something about this girl and so I looked her up after the fact and then I realized she'd been in a bunch of horror movies and I called some of my friends who had made movies with her and they're like oh she's incredible so Mm. that was an easy cast so because of the again going back to the fragmented nature of how the movie was made it's hard to give like one answer for any sort of different perspective but but it sounds like it wasn't token casting like what i'm hearing is that it wasn't token at all no and i I would say just for my own taste i would probably if i found out somebody was like a major major like a horror like a horror person quote unquote i probably wouldn't cast them because i don't want it to like i don't like actors that come in with too much baggage genre baggage specifically mm. maybe if it was like somebody who specifically only did romantic comedies or something you wouldn't expect then i think i'd probably be more interested but but yeah no i don't think there was any token casting across the board and then dime is it how'd you get clancy brown was it just somebody that you sought out specifically or was it like a recommendation from your casting director or because I'm, I'm a big clancy brown fan over here like big time same so same Yes. So Clancy came to us through our casting. I'm actually not 100% sure about that. Actually, maybe my producer may have known Clancy's manager. I'm a little bit murky on, on, on how we connected with Clancy. 
but I do know that the first time I had to meet him was scary as shit because <laughs> I love Clancy Brown and I have never done this before. Like I've never been in a position where I have to meet like somebody who I grew up watching everything they did, they've done. And so they're like, Clancy Brown's interested. And I'm like, great. And they're like, you have to go have lunch with him and he'll decide if he wants to do the movie based on how he likes you. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that you have to do. Like you have to go. And like, if my personality's bad, Clancy Brown's not in the movie. Okay. <laughs> but it's funny wow. that I went, I went to a diner. I went to a diner and I met him. And I mean, of course, he's like intimate, even more intimidating a person because he's just such a giant man. But he is so, such a sweetheart. And I think I just immediately, like within minutes of talking to him, he just, nothing about him. I've told him to, since, I was like, you don't feel like an actor. You feel like you should be like making furniture on a ranch in Wyoming. Like nothing about you says actor. Uh, and I love actors. So that's not a slight against actors, but he just has such a like casual, low key, unpretentious way about him. And, you know, I was, when we had the meeting and he, he we really clicked over, he's kind of a genre nerd. He likes sci-fi specifically, but we kind of nerded out about that. He agreed to do the movie. And then I was like looking at his filmography and the different directors he's worked with. And I was like so intimidated because he's worked with <laughs> everybody, like everybody. the best directors in the world. He has been in their movie. And I'm yeah. like, does he know that he's coming to like Oregon <laughs> to like, there's like no trailers. There's no, no like frills. It literally is this like tiny crew of like maybe 24 people. And so I was like, oh, he could come up, come here and be like, this isn't Shawshank Redemption. And instead, I think he leaned into it. I think he was like, he it excited him and he could see how, how passionate we were and how hard we were working to make something big with nothing. And he ended up being probably like the biggest cheerleader for everyone on set that kept us going when like we were tired and it was raining, which it does in Oregon constantly. And he was always in a good mood. He was in the makeup chair for like three to four hours a day. And wow. he like never once complained. And he was just like such a badass. So I'd love to hear that. You had, I mean, the film was a success, right? Can you tell us what it did for you as, as a creator, as an artist? Well, the, so, so the film came out the biggest. Okay. I, here's, here's one of the dark sides and it's not that dark, but I remember because I was working on the film for so long, the thing that I've always, like, I love to travel. And so I, I was, I remember like, you know, literally painting a set in the middle of the night and thinking like, when this movie's done, we'll, I'll travel with it and I'll go to festivals and I'll like see the world. I'll kind of live a little bit of life outside of the filmmaking sort of process while also, you know, promoting the film and, and, and meeting people and like expanding my network. And as you guys, I'm assuming you guys have been to festivals before and you, you have sort of understood that sort of camaraderie that comes with like meeting other filmmakers. And, and some of those people are, are people that I'm, are my closest friends now. And many, many, many of them worked on, on the feature with me. And uh, I think we premiered at Fantastic Fest, which was incredible. And then I went to Glasgow, Scotland for our third festival. And as I was in Glasgow, the pandemic started. And so this, we had this, like, I had this calendar. The calendar was like France, four days, fly to Amsterdam, fly to Switzerland. And it was like, there was like all of these like cool festivals and like flights were covered. And it was going to be this like epic, oh. I'm going to be in the United States for two months. And it all just like one at a time. It was like cross out, cross out, cross out, cross out. So it ended up being about a year of just sort of, you know, mid pandemic kind of sitting there waiting for the movie to come out because it didn't come out till October that year. And so that was a weird time. I mean, it was a time you were, I wasn't going to complain because I was alive and I was like safe and I had a place to stay and I was comfortable. But at the same time, it was like, oh, this thing that I'd like wanted my whole life, all I wanted to do was like 
be in Amsterdam screening a movie. Didn't happen. So that part was hard. But then we did screen at one film festival, a uh, virtual screening at Fantasia Film Festival. But their marketing team was so freaking incredible that like we just got so many reviews. I think we got like 30 reviews or something just out of Fantasia alone. And they were like wow. aggressively, they're like, we got a whole series of interviews. We want to connect you. And I've never had that with any festivals of any scale that I've ever been to. So I want to give them some praise for like really getting the word out and kind of creating a bit of buzz because after a year of like sitting on a movie and like pan and pandemicsville like nobody really knew or cared about the mortuary collection so then we released on shutter and we released in october which was a good time and i think the movie has a bit of an octobery vibe to it which really helps and and one of the nice not to keep saying i almost don't want to even say the word pandemic do people not say pandemic anymore saying a lot. I'm they say it. They say it. They say it all the time. I feel like people pretend it didn't happen. That, that, there was a nice... <laughs> there was a nice byproduct. Depends the circles you go in, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. There was a nice by byproduct that I think like at the time that we were making the Mortuary Collection, I think... That was like in the post-hereditary sort of zone. And I think a lot of horror was starting to gravitate towards sort of these kind of intense, really dark kind of uh, exposés on grief and the sort of A24 style, which is wonderful. But I think what happened is when the pandemic started, things got really depressing and people ne didn't necessarily want to watch a movie about grief. And so what was kind of nice about the Mortuary Collection is it was made as a pure popcorn fun horror movie that was supposed to elicit these feelings that, you know, like a uh, goosebumps for adults. And so I think we kind of landed at just the right time with that sort of tone that like people were kind of looking for that. I know I was looking for that as a fan. I wanted to feel, I wanted escapism cinema at the time. I didn't want to to think about what was happening. And, and so I think that helped us out a lot. And I, we were, we were, I think we were the most successful, the most watched. I don't know how, what, what the, I don't see any of the numbers, but I, I was told that we were the most successful movie on Shudder until VHS came out. And then they just like knocked us right out. Of course, ah, another anthology. <laughs> <laughs> if I got to lose to an anthology, I'd lose to VHS. I think that works. So you mentioned that like, you know, you premiered on Shudder in the fall of 2020. Was your distribution set up you know, by the financing team before your festival launch? Or did that happen at Fantasia or Fantastic Fest? Like when did the distribution come together? And then who did you go with? So yeah, so it happened at Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest isn't a huge buyers festival, but it is a very like high profile festival. So there were, I think maybe three or four people that were interested right out of Fantastic Fest. Shutter, I think was the best. We, XYZ was our sales company. Shutter came in with the best numbers. So uh, we sold it to them pretty quickly after our premiere, but then they wanted to wait till October to release it. So that was about, you know, it was about 10 months from the time they bought it to the time that they released it. And then Shutter kind of has an interesting thing laid out i don't know if it's changed but essentially they they license it for like an exclusive window on the platform and then the movies then go to they have a deal with rlj so they then go to like physical media so like after i think a certain amount of months it then they release it on amazon and then they release it like as like a hard hard media and like send it out to like walmart and target and all of that so it's kind of an everything all in one package deal you get sort of these different distribution pieces and they they were all pretty great for us because i'm obsessed with behind the scenes and kind of like like a lot of people watch the lord of the rings extended editions like 30 times and watch every single peter jackson behind the scene thing i could get my hands on and so we ended up shooting we we had a good friend of mine named Nathan Beaver. He was there for every single part of the shoot. And I think he, when we had all finished it, he had 11 hours of edited behind the scenes, like edited, wow. not footage, like wow. edited 
to be done. And then we were like, we can only fit two hours on the Blu-ray. So he spent months taking his 11-hour cut and breaking it down into, I think, 14 different segments that is a little over two hours of behind the scenes. So I would encourage anybody who is interested in seeing literally how every single thing was done in the movie. (laughs) It's all on the Blu-ray. I I gotta get it. I gotta get the (laughs) Blu-ray because I I love behind the scenes. You know, I'm just a nut for it. So that sounds up my alley. Mm. You know, I I'm, I'm genuinely, it's, it's a whole second feature film worth of, uh, worth of material. And it's, it's not boring. It's, it's, the stuff that he did is is miraculous. I was well, like, if he took know. 11 hours, put it down to two hours, it's got to be like the cream of the crop, right? It's got to be I the think goods. So. <laughs> I think it's time for our final five questions. So I'm going to jump in with the first one, which is a doozy. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Best filmmaking advice I've ever received. Man, why is that one so hard? It's hard <laughs> for everyone. I don't even know how I had to answer this question. It's funny because it feels like um, every single part of the filmmaking process is just more advice. Every, every single piece is like a lesson or advice, just like to the point that it's like, it's hard to even pull one out. I'm trying to think if there's anything that's really like changed the way I do things. This is sort of, it's less of advice and more something that me and my producing partner kind of landed on early on that we thought was really helpful for us. The act of making things, film in particular, is so overwhelming that there is this feeling that once you get into editing and you start to get near the end of wrapping it up, there's this excitement to finish it. Like you just want to get it done. You want to get out to the world. You want people to see what you've been like in a hole creating for months or years. But I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they rush that final piece because I do think there is this extra 10% at the very end where if you put a little more time into your opening titles, if you go back to that one music cue and redo it, if you think about the edits, that extra 10%, I think, really separates the amateurs and professionals. And I think if you can force yourself to stay excited, even though everyone else around you has sort of lost lost interest and is starting to like waver, I think it can be all the difference in the world. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? I, I don't know if this is film- bad filmmaking advice, but, I, but this kind of circles back to something I mentioned earlier, which is like when you're in film school or when you're like just starting out, there is this like overwhelming feeling that you have to find representatives and that representatives are going to make your career happen. And it's just false. And this is not a slight against represent reps because I I, I have them and they're great. But like in, in my case, having reps actually hurt me because I spent so much time playing this sort of game that could never be won when uh, I should have been making material. And it wasn't until I started, I, I stopped kind of like doing the, the endless water bottle tours and started making my own stuff that my career actually started moving forward. It's not necessarily advice as much as much as it's bad. A, a weird consensus in film school where it's like, as soon as I get that agent, oh buddy, it's going to happen. Do you have a goal? Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? A goal as a filmmaker? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think uh, my aspirations aren't to be making giant, enormous movies, and they're not necessarily financial. I think my goal would be to be able to sustain myself, which is surprisingly difficult as a director. Just living, like just paying your rent is, is tricky as an independent director right now. I'd like to be able to sustain myself and I'd like to be able to make mid-range movies in which I could have the creative freedom to make the kind of films that I want to make and the kind of films I want to see. And I want to make a bunch of them. <laughs> it's not It's not like I, mm. I feel like I could, I could plateau uh, and that would be great for me just to be like in a certain budget range and just be able to like continuously make movies and, and, and engage with my audience and, 
and, and be part of the community. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would tell yourself? It's so funny. It's been so long since I've thought about these like getting started, these getting <laughs> started questions. I, you know, okay I, okay, I think this is so. This is a little bit connected to the the thing I just said about reps, but it's not. I think that there is when you're fresh out of high school or when you're fresh out of film school or when you're fresh out of college when you're young there's this energy where it doesn't you don't mind sleeping on a cement floor or volunteering with your friends to make stuff because you just want to be a part of it and what happens is as you sort of start to rise up in the industry all of your friends become working professionals with families and nobody is available to do these like crazy things like just to go make stuff and so I do think there's this window post film school where it's like find your tribe either you have them from film school or you move to wherever town you are find your tribe of people and just make as much stuff because that window closes before you know it and then making independent films without boundless energy and endless uh, personal resources becomes incredibly difficult so I'd really I'd really tap into that that zone all right final question is making movies hard? Making movies is so hard. <laughs> it is. I, I I mentor film students who are coming out of, I went to Florida State. And so I uh, will mentor students coming out of the school, specifically people who are interested in genre stuff. And uh, it, it's so hard. Like I, I want all of my advice and I want my interaction with them to be all positive, but it's so hard to not be truthful about the world they're stepping into. To be a dream um, killer? Is that what you're saying? I, 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 I'm a gentle dream killer, I think, but it's it can save so much heartache because it really takes a certain type of personality and a certain type of work ethic to make it in this industry. And I think, I love this quote that you've probably heard before, but it's, um, Hollywood is the only place where you can die from encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> that's truth if that doesn't illustrate how hard movie making is i don't know what does oh, that's, that's really funny <laughs> where do you want people to go usually you have like a call to action at the end of the show and usually it has to do with some sort of promotion mm -hmm. but it could be watch your film it could be follow you on twitter whatever you want it to be it could be donate to charity whatever you want people oh, to well, do donate to charities for sure all the charities yeah I i'm on all the social medias and i'm i'm pretty open there if people want to reach out if you if you are interested in behind the scenes stuff and and i say this i don't make any money off of my movie whatsoever so <laughs> however many blu-rays are bought i'm not benefiting but i can genuinely say that the the behind the scenes that was created for the mortuary collection is well worth the price of the blu-ray if you are into that sort of thing so check it out and then i can't talk about anything that i'm working on now but yeah i oh. I, I i want to engage with people more I, my movie came out a while ago so i uh mm. nobody reaches out anymore and it's sad so so say hi <laughs> <laughs> Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with Ryan? I was like totally convinced, like I had figured out how his movie had come together before talking with him. I was like, okay, this is what happened. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Like, he made a short film. It was successful. Then, like, he found some friends and blah, 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 and made, like, an anthology. But, like, I was so fucking wrong. I was, it was complete opposite of that. It was, uh, he actually 
you know, intended to make this as a feature from the beginning. He did make one part of one short first, like, you know, as proof of concept and like, you know, it did really well at film festivals and everything. And that was what allowed him to raise the money to do the rest. But it was like, not at all. Like, like he directed and wrote every one of the, the sequences, you know, he like, you know, had this as a master plan from the beginning. So it was like a completely different scenario than the, what I had imagined in my head. So I just loved hearing about how he did it, like why he did it that way, how he had such great success. I just thought it was a fantastic conversation. I loved being so wrong and like <laughs> learning all about how he pulled this movie together, you know, which I was like completely like not expecting to hear about at all. But what about you? What do you remember? No, I remember being incredibly surprised by the process. I mean, I'm, it, it was a long time ago when we had this conversation and I feel like it was like an eight or nine year journey for him to make this yeah, feature. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think from like 2014 or 2015 to like 20, 2019, 2020 or something like that. So yeah, like six, seven years, maybe even longer, but yeah. So that was incredibly impressive. I mean, and also I think I'm just looking it up right now. I think Clinton Cornwell introduced us to- Yes, I think so. Ryan Spindell. So I just want to shout out Clinton, but this is another one of the rare occasions where I had seen the movie before we had talked to our guest and Uh I got to really like, it just became a more- meaningful conversation right to like know what he was talking about the casting process to picture the movie as he was talking about it i just think he's cool i just think ryan's really cool i think he's really generous and giving i'm really excited for him to get another project off the ground and hopefully it won't you know maybe it'll take a song but maybe but hopefully it won't and either way it'll still be successful because the first film was so good i'm 1000 percent jealous you got to work with clancy brown because clancy brown is like <laughs> incredible and i loved hearing about about that that whole thing too that was great yeah i just think you'd like at the beginning of the pandemic sean and i had like a, a mega highlander marathon oh where that's like all we did and then like i met like like rick kaplan from like who listens to the show are you friends with i'm sure feel like you're friends oh with rick. yeah 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 i know rick like it became like a bonding point for us was highlander oh, and I feel like, anyway, that was my only connection to Clancy Brown, is like my Highlander exposure. He's known for so much more, though, of course. I know Rick in the sense, like, we emailed or whatever, or, you know, but yeah, I don't know him that well. Just, I, yeah, I no, think I over, I've never... Oh, I think I oversold my knowing of Rick Kaplan. <laughs> I think we've exchanged some cool Twitter messages. That's where we are. But he's the, But I like Rick Kaplan. So. Yeah, me too. Okay, guys, without further delay, it's time to get to this brand new segment. I'm very excited to try this out. This is something that Eric Toms, our producer, came up with. So here's what it is. It's called You're the Expert. This is a segment where Eric asks Liz and I a question that we should be the experts on, and we do our best to answer this question. So like, he basically thinks like we should know the answer because like, like we have the experience in the background to like thoroughly answer this question. Uh, but we have not like, you know, I, at least I didn't read the question first to like think of notes. I think Liz might have, <laughs> but I haven't done it yet. So this question has been sent to both of us beforehand. So we had time to read it, but I did not read it. Eric says, I think I did read it a little bit, but I didn't like write notes or anything. Anyways, being redundant here. Eric says, you've both been in the inter- entertainment industry for a good long time, which makes you the expert. Here's this week's question. Should you go to film school or take that money and make a film? Liz, what do you think? We've talked about this on the show a few times, and I feel like (laughs) I've said my piece, but I'll try to summarize it succinctly here. 
I went to film school. I went to USC film school for graduate school because I had the confidence of a Titsi fly as a filmmaker. And I really need, I don't know, do Titsi flies have no confidence? I'm just saying they're tiny, but that doesn't mean they're not confident. I'm trying to think of something without confidence. A cowardly lion. A cowardly lion. There we, okay, thank you. Thank you. That's that's good. So I needed the structure of someone evaluating me, telling me what to do, giving me assignments. I, I craved that and I succeeded in that atmosphere. Had I not needed that, I would not have gone to film school. I understand that there are benefits, but the benefits do not offset the tuition. The tuition will at least at USC, will drown you. It's just insane. It's unnecessary. And I know there are other options, but I would highly recommend people just to get started, make really bad movies as often as possible so you can make mistakes and get better and better. The things I got from USC were confidence, networking, a lot of wonderful relationships, but not things that I couldn't have recreated in other ways without a massive financial investment that will not technically ever pay off, I feel. But I would be curious what you have to say. Well, first, I'm just curious, and if you're not willing to share, fine. But um, what what is the financial requirements for a place like USC? It's like $200,000 for four years, $400,000 more? I mean, I had some support, so I don't know like the exact amount. I had some help going in, and then I also worked while I was there. So I have blocked out <laughs> the total. <laughs> and, but it's, you know, I mean, it's three years of extra schooling. And then there are people at USC who fund their own thesis project, which could be $50,000, $70,000, which are just 12 Damn. minute short films. Wow. I mean, it's kind of, and when you're there in that environment, you feel this kind of pressure that that's your calling card, that you have to have that, right? I graduated from the documentary program where the school funded my thesis. And so I I had a much better financial deal. But it's just to say that it's a culture that, I think it's a delusional culture that you get wrapped up in, very, especially being in Los Angeles and very hollywood Affied. I don't think you become learn to become an artist at a place like a, like USC. But I I will say it was like the best three years of my life. Like it was truly a joyful experience just to make movies. But if someone comes to me and they're like, I can't afford it. Should I go to film school? It's like, no, do not go. Do not go. It is not worth it if it's a financial burden. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like this question is like assuming you have $200,000, let's just say, you know, whatever that, you know, that you could spend on a movie versus going to a college, but it's really not that simple. You know, like you're probably going to get like some sort of, you know, scholarship maybe, or, you know, you'll have to work or like whatever, but it's it's not like you're going to have access to that money, you know, just to go make a movie. Right. So I don't even know if it's a fair question. You know, I feel like after talking to all the guests that we've talked to and like just knowing you and I know you're poo-pooing on film school a little bit but like I think you know just way more people than I do like you know so many more people and I feel like a lot of your connections come from you know your came time from at USC. USC and I feel like that those connections are super duper valuable and I made my own connections I know my own people and everything and you know, o- over t- 10, 12, 15 years or whatever of like trying to make movies. Like I think I have, I made a lot of connections on my own, but it was like, I think you did like m- probably made more connections in three years than I did in 12 years. 
else, maybe, you know, from, uh, you know, your time at USC and maybe some more valuable connections in some way, you know, because they are like at this higher level in this like kind of protected circle of, you know, influence of some kind of some kind. They're kind of anointed in a very gross way. The my colleagues <laughs> like I will right. I will acknowledge that I know some high profile people. I wouldn't say that they consider me a friend or anything, right. but I took right. classes with them. So I have their email address. Right. 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 Exactly. So I guess like I feel like, you know, to me, if if you don't have the money and you can't afford to go, then obviously just go make movies because like you're not going to like going into to, to, you know, blindingly painful you know, killing blood curdling debt to go to school that you're going to probably have to pay off for the rest of your life is probably not worth it. Just like it, it probably would not be worth it to do the same to make a movie, like to like, you know, put, to take out a huge loan and be in mm-hmm. debt for like a hundred thousand dollars to make your first feature is, is probably not worth it. <laughs> like you probably should start smaller and work your way up and whatever. And, you know, get to the point where you can bring in investment and you don't have to like, you know, go into, you know, terrible credit card debt to make your movie. I feel like that's a lot of people say it's like, Oh, I did the credit card debt thing. And like, oh, I put it all on my credit card and whatever. And I mean, I did that too for my first few short films, but I wish I would have spent a lot less money on my original short films than I did because I didn't need to spend $40,000 on a short film. I did. I shouldn't have, you know, you know, I made other shorts for like $2,500. So I feel like that is probably a better way to go. But I guess I'm, I think the the long way of saying it is like if if you can go to film school and it's like an option for you, it's probably good. I think you should probably take it, you know, because like, yeah, you just meet so many important connections at these places and those connections and those relationships are going to be the difference. And I feel like if you've got the motivation and the no and the and the determination and the like, you know, just the drive to go make your own movie, then that drive, motivation, focus, whatever is going to, you know, you're going to take that energy and you're going to like make the most out of the college experience and like make the right connections, like, you know, work on the right projects, like, you know, it'll just work out for you. Like if you, but if you were a person who like doesn't have the drive to like make your own movie on your own, then like, you know, you you might also have a hard time in college too, because like, it's like that drive, that push, that energy, like to go out and like make the most of it is like really important. I think in whatever situation you are in, you can't just show up and expect it all to happen to you. You have to like go out and like, you know, take advantage of like the, the, the situation and the environment and the connections and the opportunities. Like, you know, you have to like work at it, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I think like, but like, let's just imagine a fantasy land that like I had $200,000. I could use it to make my own movie. And like in this world, I've never made a movie. So I haven't made a movie or maybe I made like a couple of short films in college and I have $200,000 and I could like take that and go to USC or or AFI and or I could you know go make a feature I think at the time as a 21 year old or 22 year old I would make the movie as a 30 almost 38 year old person who's lived my life and gone through I would go to film school with the $200,000 well okay here's the third option right we always have to come up with a third option (laughs) and it's you make a $50,000 movie or $75 movie and then you you come to Los Angeles and you live here and you crew 
on USC short films and AFI <laughs> short films and UCLA short films and you apply what you learn and you apply the network that you grow to your own career and you absorb what they absorb through diffusion and being on set with them and whatever. And it's like, I agree with everything you said. When I went to film school, no one had a feature script. There were like a couple people who had made a feature like in the summer with their friends. And they were like a cut above everyone. They were like the champions of indie film of our Mm. film school, even Mm. though they were like micro budget features. And everyone else was new and overwhelmed and confused. But if you go in and you're like, I have these five feature ideas, I have these short ideas and I'm going to build the crew and the network for each of these projects with amongst like the USC film school, you know, community, like that would be the best. If you came in with an actual plan, no one comes in with a plan. I feel like Mm, mm. they go in when they're 22 and they're like, I want to be an artist. And then they figure it out over three years, what they want to be. Most people in film school don't even know whether they want to be a director or an editor or cinematographer. And they learn that in film school. Right. Which is value, which is so valuable, so valuable, but you could probably learn that. Not really, though. I don't. Well, maybe. At community college, you could do a video production class. You could do. Right. I, I don't know. I'm just saying the value does. The tuition does not equate the value for me. But if tuition is not an issue, then yes, there is an incredible amount of value you can get from the experience. Just hard yeah. to discount that. I would just argue that like, you know, just a super like, you know, unfair comparison. But like. I don't think you become Ryan Coogler if you don't go to USC. Like, I think if Ryan Coogler didn't go to USC, he's not going to have the opportunity to make Fruitvale Station at the budget that he made Fruitvale Station at. Or maybe not even have the opportunity to make Fruitvale Station at all. Like, if he hadn't gone to film school, like, where would he be today? Would he have directed directed two Black Panther movies? I don't know. That's, well, that's a tough USC, question. From our, I mean, Coog was not like a friend. Of, I mean, like, I knew him, right? But he wasn't like a friend of mine. Right. But, like, he was in my husband's semester and he they took classes together. And I would say he he came in with a plan. He really right. did come in with a plan. You know what I mean? And the in the system really supported him. Like the system of USC. Like he I think Forrest Whitaker was his mentor like at USC. <laughs> right. But it wasn't like, a mentor before USC. It no, wasn't like he was so friends I think with him. You're right. You're you right. Know what I'm saying? Like it was like such additive value to him. But right. I do think he'd still get there without USC. I, do. I don't think so. I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't do. Think so. I really do. I think he would. I'd, he'd still be the champion without USC. Yeah. I mean, I think he would probably figure it out. But like, I don't think he would be, you know, because he's like our age, you know, and like yeah. he's he wouldn't be where he is now without that I, system i of disagree support. i have not i mean he he just has it all <laughs> i genuinely think he could have made it work without usc you think without forrest whitaker without getting michael b jordan you know like he i don't think he found a way i, I don't think he cast people. michael b jordan without the support of forrest whitaker on you he know still could have done the, it i don't know i t- we worship ryan coogler like i mean we, me too he's like my hero but like i so just like, feel like he could do no wrong i think he would just just i would I would love to ask him that question. I would love to see what his take is on. Like, if he thinks that he could have made Fruitvale Station 
without the 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 path of going through USC. If like that movie would have happened without that, I, he, he probably will so say no. Humble. He he's would so say humble. No. He would say no, and he, he would, would be no. like express nonstop gratitude for the people who are supported him. But <laughs> I think that's just like his. You think character. like super talented individuals like that, like these these diamonds, you know, these outliers. Outliers is the word I'm looking for. You feel like these outliers will will shine and succeed no matter the environment that they're put in. You think they're always going to do I think that he'd well. get to Forrest Whitaker otherwise. I do. I think there would have been another way that like yeah. he would have made uh, his short film probably would have been a hit whether he made it at USC or not. And that was the film. I mean, like I'm trying to remember I had friends who wrote wrote his first short film, but it's like whatever I whatever I maybe this is hero worship, but it's like I just have <laughs> ultimate faith that he would have succeed no matter what. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel that way about everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe just him, just him. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking like if Steven Spielberg wasn't born in Los Angeles, like if he was born in like you know New Jersey, like would he have had yes the success? He thinks no matter what, he's like nothing's gonna stop this guy like he's gonna be get a different version of the same success yeah i do yeah, yeah you're probably right you're probably right well this was fun i enjoyed this <laughs> interesting conversation i mean we have covered this before and this is like something that we've talked about i mean with timothy and i talked about this a lot um in the old version of the show but yeah i, I don't know i feel like i've i've gotten a new reverence for film school and the connections and it's it's not like it's a guarantee you know, like you're not going to just go to like Chapman or USC or AFI or, or Columbia and just like on, you know, instantly have a career. But like the people that I know who have gone to those institutions, like I feel like a lot of them have very successful careers. And I think it's because of those, you know, connections and, the, and that experience. Yeah. But there's also people who didn't go to school at all who are also have wonderful careers. So it can, it can work either way. It can work either way. But if you like this segment, let us know. You can uh, give us your opinion by sending us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. I would love suggestions, comments, topic suggestions, guest suggestions, whatever you got. Send it to us. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, which we love, love, love. Finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and of course, their top 25 writers list. And so head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Ryan Spindell for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for just being awesome. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you on Thursday. The Mortuary Collection. Oh, am I getting it wrong? Is it the Mortuary something else? It's the Mortuary. It the Mortuary. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.